So my name is uh, Michel Dugas, and I'm a professor at, uh, in the Department of Psychology of l'Université du Québec en Outaouais, in Quebec, Canada. Um, I have been at uh, LUCO for the past uh, 10 years, approximately. And before that, uh, I spent 15 years at Concordia University in Montreal, uh, where I uh, began this, uh, this program of research. I think that the workshop that Ross Schaffner and I will be presenting uh, will be a lot of fun. I think it will be interesting and I think it will be helpful. I think what we're really looking to do is to present material which is clinically useful and which is grounded in basic cognitive behavioral theory. Give us a bit of background, first of all. What's the relationship between anxiety and uncertainty, just in very general terms? People don't generally like uncertainty. In other words, you know, if we're given the choice between something that is clear, something that is uh, unambiguous, and another option which is less clear and more ambiguous, uh, just about everyone will choose the clearer option. So, so one thing we know from the research of social psychology is that uh, just about everyone prefers certainty over uncertainty. Now, what uh, our research has shown over the past 25 years and the research of many other groups is that um, there are individuals who not only prefer certainty, but really despise uncertainty and have difficulty dealing with situations that provoke these feelings of uncertainty. And essentially those situations are situations that are novel situations that are unpredictable or situations that are ambiguous. So whenever uh, we're faced with situations where we just don't have all of the information we need to correctly interpret and understand the situation, uh, there's a subset of individuals who have more difficulty with that not knowing and the feelings of uncertainty that they experience. And what we know and what the research has shown very clearly uh, over the, really since the beginning is that those individuals have greater difficulty dealing with situations that provoke uncertainty are individuals who are at risk for developing anxiety and worry and what, what we call generalized anxiety disorder. This is not a kind of direct cause and effect relationship between these two things. And there's lots of other mechanisms and pathways that we're talking about. But I guess there's a lot more uncertainty in the world now than there was three years ago. And, you know, gradually, I think we are living in a, you know, a difficult time in terms of climate change and, you know, inequalities and all sorts of things. Um, do you think the rise in uncertainty is leading to, partly is, contributing to the rise in anxiety disorders that we're seeing? That's a tricky question because uh, fundamentally anxiety or fear, like all of our emotions, are, um, serve a purpose, right? So when we experience fear and anxiety, essentially what that emotion is communicating to us is that there may be a danger and that we may need to uh, protect ourselves in some way or another. So anxiety fundamentally is, is a helpful emotion. Now, uh, we tend to forget that, you know, we talk about anxiety because it, 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 uh, we, we tend to think about anxiety as something that's necessarily pathological. 
But I mean, we all experience anxiety, we all worry, etc. Um, so we need to keep that in mind when we look at the data uh, of this rising anxiety, because you know, the greater the objective threat, the more anxiety we will experience. It doesn't mean that that, ex- that anxiety is pathological or excessive. It just may mean that the threat is greater. So I am reacting with my defense mechanism when my smoke detector is going off saying, be careful. So yes, we are seeing rises in anxiety uh, you know, everywhere in the world over the past couple of years. Now, is that anxiety pathological or is that anxiety a natural and helpful reaction to a situation which is objectively dangerous? That's a whole different question. Um, so we need to keep in mind that you know, increases in anxiety don't necessarily mean increases in anxiety disorders because an anxiety disorder uh, is defined by anxiety which is excessive given the person's life situation. And what I've noticed over the past few years is the difference between normal adaptive anxiety to a threatening situation and pathological anxiety has been lost a little bit in the media. Okay, so we're gonna come on obviously and talk about your behavioral experiments. Um, and get a, get into a bit of detail around how they can help people and how they can teach us more. Before we do, though, I want to just kind of give an introduction to the evidence base more broadly in this field, if that's possible. Um, I'd like you to tell me what works best to help people with anxiety to cope with their uncertainty and worries. What we think we know today is that, that behavioural change and experiential learning Uh, is probably the best way to change how we think and and our attitudes. So one shift that I've noticed in the literature um, is that um, cognitive methods, so these these more logical sort of analyses of situations, what is the actual danger? What would I do if that that, that, uh, dangerous situation did in fact occur? Uh, What we think we know today is that those cognitive methods are helpful but they don't appear to be sufficient. They don't seem to be, you know, that that logical thinking does not seem to be hardwired to emotion so that many clients who, uh, who, who seek help will say, you know, I understand that the situation is, is not as dangerous as I thought it was, but at the same time, it, that doesn't seem to have an impact on my anxiety or my fear. So to, um, to really get at that, that emotional component Um, the data is converging towards a general conclusion, which is that behavioral methods are most effective to help people to to decrease their fear and anxiety. Is that an explanation for why CBT doesn't help a lot of people with anxiety? CBT is is an umbrella term that is used to describe many different types of therapies. And that is more true today than it's ever been. And I think that it really depends on what kind of CBT you're talking about. Because, of course, in that acronym CBT, you have cognitive and behavioral. So uh, what we know today is, and what we've known uh, for many, many years, is that the best way to decrease fear is to experience the situations that provoke fear 
and then to habituate or to develop new beliefs about the fearful situation. So that CBT, which is heavier on the behavioral side, which is really focuses on exposure to situations that provoke fear, um, those types of CBT are, I believe, very helpful for anxiety in general and, and generalized anxiety disorder in particular. Now, CBT, which is more heavily C, so uh, more heavily cognitive, uh, perhaps is not as uh, helpful as the CBT, which has a larger B, which is more behavioral. So tell us about these behavioral experiments. Give us some examples of the kinds of experiments that you do with people and, and how they help people specifically with their uncertainties. We've seen many, many patients over the years in our clinical trials and also uh, in supervision in private practice. So many examples come to mind. I'll try to discuss examples that, that best encapsulate this idea of uncertainty. Um, so I'm thinking about one client who was a mother of a young child and uh, her daughter was in primary school. And um, the client, her mother, who, um, who suffered from generalized anxiety disorder, was very worried that something would happen to her daughter on the way to school and at school. So what she did, of course, is that she would, uh, she would follow the school bus in her car every morning to school just to be sure that the school bus made it safely to school. Now, most people would, would, would consider the fact that you know, school buses are very rarely involved in road accidents. Um, but for someone who is intolerant of uncertainty, even if there's one chance out of you know, five million, that's too much. So in order to attain certainty that her daughter had made it to school uh, safely, she would follow the school bus in her car every day. So obviously, one of the first things that, uh, that we wanted to do in therapy was to begin to curb this certainty-seeking safety behavior, which was following the bus in her car. So gradually, we had her taper that, make predictions about what would happen, how she would feel, and then compare her predictions to what actually happened, which, of course, was nothing. Um, so there's one example of how that particular client um, used exposure to decrease her fear that something would happen to her daughter and increase her tolerance for uncertainty, her tolerance for not knowing exactly what was happening with her daughter. Now, uh, sticking with that same client, there was another situation that came up where when her daughter went to a friend's house to play, she would have to be on the phone with her mother the whole way as she, got, as she walked to her friend's house. For the same reason, the mother, the client or the patient wanted to be to be certain that her daughter would make it to her friend's house safely. So, you know, we 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 set up with the client, set up some behavioral experiments. Um, so, you know, a first step was that her daughter would call her when she got there to say, hi, mom, I've made it here. I'm safe. Uh, everything is fine. And then the next step, of course, was having her daughter go to her friend's house without calling her mother to reassure her that she had made it there safely. So in both these, these behavioral experiments, following the bus to school and talking to her daughter as she walked to her friend's house, what we're really trying to do here is to have the client experience some uncertainty and learn, first of all, that 
terrible things don't necessarily happen when you're faced with a situation that, that, that provokes uncertainty. And the second thing we wanted our client to learn was that she was able to sit with these feelings of uncertainty um, and tolerate those feelings to a, a, a larger extent than what she originally thought. So tell me how you then study that. Can you, can you study those sorts of experiments in a randomized controlled trial? Uh, well, a randomized controlled trial, um, we've, we've, we actually have a study right now, which is IMPRESS, which is a randomized controlled trial. Uh, it's currently in press in a journal called Behavior Therapy. And, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we basically tailor the behavioral experiments to each client and then assess the effectiveness of treatment um, from pre-test to mid-test to post-treatment. Um, so we don't actually, in, in, an, in an RCT, we do not test individual behavioral experiments to see the, the exact effect of each one. But one of the things that we did do, and this is not published yet, is that we looked at uh, what is known in the scientific literature as uh, expectancy violation. And what that means, expectancy violation, is that uh, this is a principle of a theory of exposure, which says that the greater the difference between what you think will happen before you enter an exposure situation and what actually happens, the greater the learning. So the more you're surprised by what happens, the more you will learn about that situation. Um, so the greater the gap between the prediction and the outcome, uh, the outcome being more positive than the prediction, well, the more that exposure should be effective. And we have data because we measure this in our treatment studies. And we have data that shows that in fact, the extent of expectancy violation does predict the extent of decrease in worry and anxiety. So I, I, you know, that is a sort of indirect non-experimental way of uh, beginning to get at that question of how do these behavioral experiments actually work? Why is it that they work so well? How can we take this approach and thinking about it on a much bigger scale, work out you know, what works for whom and why? There are two things to keep in mind. The first is that uh, the general principle of facing situations that provoke uncertainty, worry, and anxiety should lead, if it's done correctly, it should lead to decreases in, uh, in worry and anxiety. That general principle is well-established and it is true across the board. In other words, you know, that, that human being who doesn't respond to exposure doesn't exist. When it's done well, these are fundamental uh, uh, principles of learning, which we know to be valid. So that principle applies across the board. So we know that we can use that principle to help all clients with GAD who come to us for help. Now, the second thing we need to keep in mind is that generalized anxiety disorder as the name suggests, is generalized. So clients who have generalized anxiety disorder, well, they just worry about everything. And we ask, and when we ask them, well, what do you worry about? 
Sometimes their answer is, well, what don't I worry about, right? I worry about everything. So when things aren't going well, I worry about that. And then when things are going well, well, then I worry that that will change. So I'm always worried and about everything. So there's a lot of variability and there are many different worry themes in, uh, for people who, who meet diagnostic criteria for GAD. So we need to take that general principle of exposure to uncertainty uh, to decrease worry and anxiety and apply it to each client's individual worry themes. So the client that we discussed earlier who worried about something happening to her daughter, well, obviously the behavioral experiments will have something to do with how she deals with her daughter's daily activities. Other clients who worry about their health, uh, well, then we may have behavioral experiments where they decrease the doctor shopping. Uh, they may wait for a week before they consult their family physician if they, if they have an ache or a pain. Uh, another client uh, who uh, worries a lot about what, uh, what people might, might think about them, so social evaluation or judgment, well, then we would have behavioral experiments where that person would, uh, would uh, enter uncertainty-provoking social situations and learn to tolerate that uncertainty. So the bottom line is that um, rather than reassuring our clients that things will go well, we want our clients to experience uncertainty without reassurance so that they learn that they can deal with uncertainty because being reassured is helpful in the short term, but it actually contributes to intolerance of uncertainty in the long term. 